Welcome to Tzarech Iyun, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. Listen in as two Rebbeim reflect with one another on current events and unpack central Hashkafic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for diversion perspectives informed by both study and lived experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shivim Panima Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Tsarach Iyun podcast brought to you by Shivat Oraita. My name is David Silverstein, and today I am joined by my friend Akiva Bigman. Akiva is a former columnist for Yisrael Hayom. He was a political commentator on Arutz Arbaas, right, Channel 14. Um, he currently returned back to the website called Mida, which is a political and uh, military a strategy website that he founded originally a bunch of years ago. He has returned back to Mida. He writes primarily in Hebrew. He also has a very engaging podcast, and I think he's a really important person to have on the podcast to be able to hear a perspective that isn't often discussed in the context of the English-speaking world. So, Akiva, thank you so much for coming on the Tzarachim podcast. Sure. Thank you for having me. I forgot to mention one other thing in your bio is that you're also currently in the process of... Uh, receiving a pursuing a doctorate at uh, Barlan University in military strategy. So you're not only uh, you know a commentator, but you're also somebody who's actively involved in the world of scholarly research uh, on these topics. So maybe we can begin with uh, something that you've written about. Um, there's been a lot of talk in Israel in the aftermath of October 7th in what they call the Shinui Beconceptia, which doesn't translate as well into English. You know, the problems of the conception, probably more accurately as the misconceptions. But uh, there's been a lot right. of talk about misconceptions that led to the horrors of October 7th. Um, a lot of times in English, when people hear about the misconceptions, they talk about the misconceptions, A, in the sense that Hamas was deterred, right? And they weren't interested in uh, military adventures. And also in the misconception that technology could serve as uh, basically a substitute for physical presence on the border. But you've actually have a much more ambitious critique. And in your writings and also in your podcast, you talked about uh, much more significant misconceptions that were at play that led to uh, what happened in October 7th. So before we talk about some lessons and sort of moving forward, maybe if you could just describe for a few minutes in your eyes, what were the primary biot uh, baconceptia, right? Changes, uh, misconceptions that drove uh, the disaster? On October 7th and um, beyond sort of the ones we discussed, do you think there are any other misconceptions that were part and parcel of, uh, of the failure here? Yeah, so, um, well, the two major misconceptions were the way we understood Hamas and the idea that Hamas uh, was deterred and is not interested in a confrontation with Israel. Um, now, this conception is based on a, a, a deeper idea uh, understanding of your enemies, of your adversary, what they seek, what they want, how they operate. And this is a, this goes way deep. The, the, the thought that uh, enemies like Hamas are interested in, in uh, controlling their state and they want to like, normalize their state. And they want to have, um, they, want, they want their population to have a better life and they want, they're dealing with economics. And they care about you know the level of living and the and the, and, the, and what's going on in the day to day life of their citizens. Um, so, so that's like the basic that's a basic failure of understanding. You, you can see if you follow what people have been writing and talking about the the thought is 
this it's not only Hamas. That's why it's important. It's also Hezbollah. It's also uh, the PLO. It's it's all the same. And the idea is that all people, or maybe all cultures, um, actually are similar, and we're all interested in the same goals. Okay, basically. I would say, like um, you know, physical, economical. You know, uh, it's not lifestyle; it's more of like well-being. Okay, everybody's interested in that, and uh, and there's some issues of like national honor or something. Like that. And now, what happens is you have a terrorist organization. They 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 uh, they choose. To, to, to adopt the strategy of terror and the guerrilla warfare because they have no choice, because they don't, they don't control territory, there's no state. Um, they cannot use any other means to achieve the goals that we think everybody is trying to achieve. And then the, second, the next stage is to assume that if a terrorist organization gets control of the territory and the people and it can behave like a normal nation, it will be. It will care about normal stuff. Once Hamas won the elections and took control of the Gaza Strip, people in Israel's uh, military establishment they said this is actually good because now Hamas have responsibility on their own territory. They have their own population, and therefore they will seek what we seek in our territory and population, meaning uh, you know get economical, uh, basically economical and. Uh, and physical improvements uh, of the life for their citizens. Education, right? They, they will care about work, they will care about employment, they will care about uh, living standards, etc. That's That's the basic idea, okay? And then derives from this is, is all there is. Now, this basic idea is the basic concept that created the Oslo Accords, it was the, the exact same. We took the PLO, which is a terrorist organization, and we gave them territory and responsibility on population. And the idea was that Arafat will become a normal leader, a political leader of a, of a semi-state, and then he will stop being a terrorist. Okay, that's it's the same. It's the same concept. Now, what derives from that is that you you assume you have leverage on your uh, rival, on your opponent. Okay. Because even if Hamas did not become uh, a peaceful Western kind of uh, national regime, but because you assume all the way that he cares about those issues, he cares about if the if his people are unemployed and he cares about you know how much food they get and and education and stuff like that, you think you have leverage on Hamas. Now, if you would follow uh, throughout the years, every time there was some kind of escalation with Hamas. So the IDF announced that they're uh, they're cutting short the fishing zone, right? It's been talking about this all the time. Hamas would fire rockets, so the, the the Israeli Navy would say, okay, you can go fishing only like three kilometers into sea instead of five, right? We would use this fishing zone as some kind of section, as if Hamas cares that a few fishermen cannot fish uh, so much. Uh, and, and, and other means of leverage of, of this kind have been imposed on Hamas all the time. Since Hamas took power in Gaza, we're, they were not allowed to have any Palestinian workers from Gaza Strip to come into Israel. In the past, these, these tens of thousands used to work in Israel. 
And when Hamas took power, so Israel said, okay, we're not going to allow these people to come in anymore. This will put pressure on Hamas. That was the idea. And, uh, and uh, like a year ago, during the Bennett government, uh, is a famous, it's not famous, but there's a tweet of Bennett, he decided to allow these Palestinian workers to come back in from Gaza, 20,000 of them. Uh, and he said this, he, he actually said what I'm, what I'm saying now. He says, once these Palestinian workers come to work in Israel, now Hamas has something to lose. And if Hamas has something to lose, they will not escalate against us. Because if they do, these people will be unemployed. So this, this, this concept that Hamas cares about stuff most of us care, and that you can use this as some kind of leverage against them, is rooted very, very deep in the Israeli strategic thinking and thought. Uh, another example of this is the uh, it's the agreement with uh, Lebanon last year, last summer, with the, with the zone, the water zone, the sea zone with the gas, right? Oh, uh, there was a whole there's a whole conflict. We're not going to go into all the details, but there's a, there's been a uh, negotiations for a long time between Israel and Lebanon about the boundaries and the sea because of the way the mapping works. There was some kind of territory in dispute. Now, nobody really cared about that for almost 70 years until they found some kind of a gas deposit that some of it is underneath this, uh, this uh, disputed territory in the sea. And uh, there was a long time of negotiations with the Obama administration, and then uh, Trump had a different idea. And then now with the Biden administration and Israel's uh, new government that was, um, that was in power uh, a year and a half ago, they got to an agreement and we, we ceded some of this territory for, for Lebanon. And then our, our people, the people in the Israeli uh, establishment, the, the military defense establishment, they explained to us that this is good because now Hezbollah, uh, they have something to lose. They have a, a gas deposit, they can drill for gas, they have what to lose in case of a conflict. And that's good for us. Like giving your enemy, excuse me, giving your enemy more, uh, more nechasim, uh, more uh, more assets. Uh, what's the word? More like property. More assets. Yeah. What? More assets. Yeah. More assets. Yeah. To give your enemy more assets and basically strengthening him, that's good because then you have leverage. It's like so. I would say, well, why if if you know don't you know. It's better to have him, you know, weaker in the first place instead of making him stronger, so you can make him weaker again in case of need. But the whole idea was that they, now they have some kind of asset, and they would like to keep it because they care about the gas, they care about the citizens, they care about the employment, and and all that. So basically, another. So this is, oh, sorry. Go ahead. So this is like the basic underlying uh, concepts of, uh, that kind of ruined the whole strategic thinking about about uh, terrorist organizations in Israel. That's the way the establishment thinks. And uh, just, and just so like to clarify one thing, in other words, your, your claim basically is, is that uh, the nature of terror organizations is that they're not interested, right, in governance. In other words, fundamentally, they're interested in something else. So to provide some sort of practical medium for them to govern, right, doesn't really make a difference because at the end of the day, no matter how much governing, governing opportunities they have, right, they're interested in, let's say in our case, in the destruction of the state of Israel. So it doesn't really matter whether or not they have these assets because the assets, right, if they lose those assets, it doesn't really matter because their ultimate goal is not full governance or ultimate goal, at least in the short term, right, is the destruction 
right, of the state of Israel. Now, how would you say, obviously, you know, the people who are in the government and the people who are the military strategists, you know, are intelligent people, right? They're not, uh, these aren't people who have no training. So on the surface, your argument seems to be a slam dunk argument. And right? on the surface, it seems to be that, you know, how would you possibly, you know, fall prey to this misconception? So I'm curious if you, if you could just reflect for a few minutes on, you know, this idea that you're describing seems to be basically government policy for a long time, right? At least since the Oslo Accords, it seems to continue, right? At least through the Bennett government and presumably even to the current government. So what, what is the counter argument? In other words, you know, obviously there has to be some logic here, right? So what, what was the idea, right? What was the counter argument? I mean, they saw, for example, what you saw, they saw what I saw that after the Israelis withdrew from Lebanon, it was a disaster. After the Israelis withdrew from Gaza, you know, it was a disaster. So sort of what was, was the undercurrent really just based on the idea that, you know, this conception drives the day and there was no other logic, you know, other than this sort of fundamentally flawed idea? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to say, yeah, that's the answer. Sometimes bad ideas uh, rule. I mean, I, I can't, I can't, I, I can't do Melamed's chut here. Right. I mean, uh, they really think like that. It's, it's, it's in all the writings, and um, and you can still see talk about like now Hamas would be uh, deterred. Mm -hmm. that, that was that's like the next stage of this argument is because their assets you can attack and you can uh, you can uh, cause damage to your opponent. Therefore, you can think about him being deterred. Right. That's and that's what, where what... this argument is going, and we're still talking about that. Okay, we're talking this pressure on the population in Gaza, so Hamas uh, might take action, and people are like waiting, they're always waiting for some kind of like uh, uprising of the population. It's always entered. At some point, there will be an uprising because people can't stand it or whatever, and and um, and and it just it doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. The the Gazan population, they're all they're all Hamas. They're not exactly all Hamas activists. They're certainly not all of them are actual terrorists, but they're all Hamas sympathizers and supporters. Mm -hmm. They support this goal. Hamas uh, created for them, actually, uh, the, the, the life in, in the Gaza Strip were not that bad as people think. Also, Hamas had jobs and, and uh, hospitals and educational systems, etc. So it wasn't that bad either. And, uh, and then they basically support the, the ultimate goal. They think they're heroes. And they're willing to suffer for this goal also. So the whole concept is... Uh... And I think I think a lot of the sort of underlying logic of the concept um, is based on the idea that, at least on the surface, that there's a distinction between terror organizations or terrorist groups that at their core are religious, right, versus other ones which are more secular. And therefore, you, you hear a lot of this rhetoric uh, oftentimes that, well, you know, Hamas is a problem, they're a radical jihadist group. You know, ISIS is the problem, they're a radical jihadist group. You know, Hezbollah is a problem, they're a radical jihadist group. But um, more secular groups like the PA, right, structurally, they're less problematic because, you know, since they are more secular, so they actually are interested in governance. Uh, do you think that's a fair assessment? Do you think that basically, ultimately, even if they're, let's say, less religious than the more extremist groups, they still are fundamentally rooted in Islamic ideology, which is sort of open, which is really, you know, does not right. have the possibility of living together? Yeah, so this this is a, the next the next stage in the, to understand what's going on is our misconception of the of arrivals is, has to do with a misconception of religion in general, and uh, specifically with Islam. Now, the, the, the start with religion in general. Most people in Israeli uh, military establishment are seculars. 
the seculars and the modern um, Western idea of secular secularism. Okay, when you're secular, uh, it's not only that you, from different reasons, um, don't do all of the mitzvahs. It's you think um, you have a different way to view the world. Okay, you think the you think religion is is not real. It's all nonsense. Uh, you want to be rational, and you think people should be rational, and then you don't understand basic behavior of religious people, even inside the Jewish society. They cannot understand the Haredim. Okay, well, how can people choose from their own will to be poor in order to learn Torah? Like the whole concept of Israeli Haredism. They cannot get it. Okay, and therefore they will say, um, the, the, Haredi, the Haredi society is maybe it's captive by its leadership. Okay, like something is corrupt, something is wrong. The women are, are suffering, they're captive. It cannot be that these women uh, actually see some benefits in this way of life, and they like this way of life. They have the families, they have a different kind of status in this kind of life. But people outside of this um, philosophy, or people who are secular as an ideology, they cannot get even to understand this. Okay, it it, it cannot exist. Something there must be something, um, you know. Uh, forcing the society to behave like this because naturally people will not behave like this. Now, when you talk about Islam, when Islam is not only about you know your behavior on a day-to-day basis, uh, maybe issues of men and women and families in a structure, Islam is a political religion which has political goals. The political goals are to um, take control of the Islamic territory, which is happens to be the state of Israel. Uh, it's very, very deeply anti-Semite, um, and 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 therefore you cannot understand this or not accept that there are people that actually live like this. You, 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 the, the people, secular um, ideological people, cannot accept this as a uh, as a actual fact of life that there are people that view things differently and they behave differently, and they they, they uh, their goals in life are different. Okay, and then they don't care so much about education and uh, and well-being like you might, and uh, and that's just the way the way they are now. As and and therefore, this causes also this misconception you said about the PA, which is not the PA, it's the PLO. <laughs> PA is just like a, a structure. Uh, the thought that they are secular and Hamas is religious—that's that's also false. It's in our, it's in our minds because in Islamic society, nobody is really secular. Okay, Arafat used to go to mosques all the time and talk about Muhammad and the jihad, like any other any other jihadist. Uh, it's it's not Arafat was not like Shimon Peres. Shimon Peres wouldn't go to like a uh, synagogue and talk about how he wants Beit Hamikdash to be rebuilt. Okay, right. right. He, he might refer to Israeli. He would refer to like Jewish, uh, you know, culture and stuff and history, whatever. But he wouldn't talk about the like, you know, religious goals of politics, right? Uh, he, he wouldn't talk about the messianic stuff in Judaism. Nobody in Israeli, secular Israeli, would talk about that, even people on the right, right? because their politics are secular. Arafat's politics were not secular. There was differences between uh, Arafat and Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood and other uh, other uh, movements, but basically they're all is- Islamists. 
And maybe some of them do not obey the Sharia as others, and that could be the difference. The Hamas are very firm, uh, and they could, maybe the PL activists were not that uh, you know not that firm about the about their mitzvahs, uh, but they are still Islamists. Okay, so it's more of like a structure of tzaddikim, benonim, and reshaim, right. but they're all in the same um, in the same uh, you know uh, scale. Okay, so you may be like a rasha because you're young and you want to drink alcohol or, you know, hang around with ladies and stuff like that. But you know, you're not, you, you don't think this is right. You're just saying, okay, I'm not that, I'm not a tzaddik. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you do uh, accept the tzaddik's, uh, you know, view of life and what's important, mm-hmm. right? So that's that's more uh, of the way the, the Arab society works. So. So, so therefore, also you can find like academics, people you know that are supposed to be like secular in their ideology in the Islamic society that support those goals. Mm-hmm. The professor, doctors, scientists, mm-hmm. all the people that in the West usually uh, move move away from from uh, religion. They move away from the church. Mm-hmm. They're, they're anti-religion. They want religion out of the public sphere. Right? We see this all over the place in the West. Mm-hmm. The more you're uh, educated. The more you're professional, you're usually less religious, right? Mm-hmm. And you adopt secularism as an as a ideology. And the Arab and Islamic world uh, tends to work differently. And mm-hmm. people who who think differently and adopt uh, Western secular ideas usually immigrate and run away <laughs> from these places. Mm-hmm. So if you have somebody who's like a professor in Gaza, so he's a Islamic professor. He accepts this worldview, no matter uh, how. Uh, you know, how, how many uh, pub, uh, academic publications or whatever he has, which most of them probably don't. Mm-hmm. So so this is like the deeper misconception of the whole idea. So And then you have the structure that you think, okay, I understand how they think. I know uh, what they care about. And therefore, I can have leverage in them. And once you think you have leverage in them, you, you, try, to, uh, you try to figure out uh, or to... You try to start thinking that he may be deterred. Mm-hmm. Okay, and this this is how we come to the idea that Hamas is deterred. Interesting. Okay, so I mean, there's an there's an interesting um, sort of um, theme that you hear oftentimes. I'm not sure how tuned you are to sort of the English speaking uh, podcast world, but there are certain people, uh, political commentators in the podcast world, who are sort of very prominent, very articulate. And one of the things I've heard them address recently, which I actually hadn't planned on asking you about, but I think it comes directly out of what we're talking about now is, you know, I've heard people claim that um, that the theory that you're describing, right, that ultimately uh, Islamic society is a very religious society and oftentimes structurally because of its religious nature, it doesn't allow, right, to sort of think about the the way in which the Western sort of secular world perceives the world. And they use an uh, uh, interesting political figure named Mansour Abbas as sort of a counter argument, right? And they'll say, for example, well, you know, I've actually heard this argument. It's actually a creative argument. Someone has argued that Mansour Abbas, um, they perceive to be a pragmatist. And their argument is, is that even though he's an Islamist, he's a pragmatist. And actually, I've heard somebody, uh, Khaviv Redigur, who himself is a very big astute observer, uh, make the argument that it's because of his sort of messianic radicalism that allows him to be pragmatic. Right. His claim basically is that because he believes ultimately God will take care of things, right? So in the short term, 
he's able to sort of be more pragmatic. I, I'm curious if you could just for a few minutes reflect on, you know, do, do you think that that's true? Meaning we've talked about misconceptions in terms of Hamas, either right. other misconceptions in terms of the PLO. Are the misconceptions so deep that even somebody who people perceive to be like a more moderate, like uh, Mansour Abbas, is he sort of part of the same orbit or is there something unique going on there also? Yeah. Well, anybody talking about this needs to remember Mansour Abbas pays off terrorists all the time from mm -hmm. their budget. Okay. Mm -hmm. right? Including now, there was the, this week, there was a, was reported that they're going to pay the 7th of October jihadists also. They're going to pay money to these families from the PLO. No, but I'm not, PA, talking, I'm not talking about I'm not talking about Mahmoud Abbas. I'm talking about Mansour Abbas. Oh, you're talking about Mansour, the Israeli. Mansour, okay. Yeah, oh, Mansour yeah. Abbas. Yeah. Okay, right, right. All right. Yeah, okay, so that's a good question. Well, um, yeah, so Mansour Abbas is obviously Muslim Brotherhood, right? Um, and therefore, you would expect uh, for him to act differently. So in Israel, this is a whole different topic because the Israeli Arabs, they're not militant in this, the way Hamas is militant because um, they're different conditions. They, right. they cannot be that militant. But the Israeli Muslim Brotherhood basically is broken up to two different branches. There's the Northern uh, uh, Brotherhood and there's the Southern Brotherhood. Uh, they're not called Brotherhood, they're called the uh, Islamic Movement, okay, mm -hmm. in Israel. The Northern branch, which is led by uh, uh, Sheikh Raid Salah from Umm al-Fakhim, he's more of the, he's more of radical, he's really a, a Israeli branch of Hamas. Us. And he was in prison, and uh, his movement is illegal because of that. This, the, and, and they uh, they're against uh, taking part in Israeli politics, and they, they say Israel is not legitimate. We should not um, cooperate cooperate with it in any uh, way or form, and we should wait for it to collapse. Uh, this the southern Islamic movement is is more moderate tactically, and they say Israel is a fact. We, our people live in Israel and we can work with Israeli, um, the Israeli system to benefit our society. Um, and therefore, yeah, it's more, they, they collaborate with uh, the establishment. A lot of the, the mayors, and the public officials in Arab society belong to the, this, this branch of the Islamic movement. And, um, but, but why, but why couldn't, so Abbas is one of them, uh, a lot of Bedouins in the Negev. Right. But why could but, but, but I think that's important though so, because you can you can imagine someone saying that's the source of the quote unquote misconception that you described, right? Because if the average sort of Israeli politician sees that it's that there are people within Israel, right, who are pragmatic and able to work with the Israeli government, right, to sort of make things better and don't assume, like you described earlier, that their ultimate goal is the destruction of Israel and therefore they're not interested in governance. So Presumably, it's not that far of a jump for someone to say, well, if the Islamists within Israel are open to pragmatism, then the Islamists outside of Israel, whether that's in Gaza or in the north, in Hezbollah, are open to pragmatism. Meaning, it sounded like initially you were saying that it's something built into the fabric of Islamic culture, right? right that is hyper non-pragmatic and hyper-religious, etc. But if you're saying now that within Israel, there's a radical, there's an Islamic element, albeit part of the, uh, the albeit the southern branch, which is more pragmatic, right? Wh why is it, do you think, that, you know, the misconception is so, is so impossible to carry over outside of Israel, right? In other words, it seems to me that there seems to be logic here, that let's, let's, par let's replicate the Israeli right. model outside of Israel. Right, so, no, this is important, and, and, and this, this is a, this is why I, at the beginning I misunderstood Mansour Abbas with Mahmoud Abbas, and I will explain. Because according to 
the Islamic worldview, and maybe you should have on your podcast somebody who's professional Islamist to explain this to you. But um, they can be pragmatic when their enemies are strong. That's 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 the way halakhically. Okay, they have a halakhic mitzvah of jihad. You have to destroy the infidels, uh, and that's this is a a, a mitzvah that that uh, every person, a private person, is obliged to take to take part in this war. It's really it's a personal uh, obligation. It's really a mitzvah. The chov- chov- gavra, uh, to use, uh, you know. Right, it's a chov- the gavra, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, now you have um, uh, you have a you, you can be patul from this chov- the gavra if your adversary is too strong uh-huh. and you cannot win, and it's called in the, in the political and when it's not chov- the gavra when it's when it's uh, wider when it's political it, they call it hudna. Udna is a temporary ceasefire that the Muslims will accept if their adversary is strong. And now Hudna can last for hundreds of years. Okay, it could be long. And by the way, every time we have the um, talks with Hamas, they call it Hudna because they know what they're saying. And then we, Eud Barak, uh, accepted this and we started talking about Hudna also, which is crazy. Okay. But Hudna is basically a ceasefire that your enemy will break once once he has the opportunity because he only has a he's only patul from this mitzvah if the enemy is strong enough and he can't um, he can't win. But once he thinks he can win, so he's he's chayav again, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the chovat agava comes back, and then you have to attack. So when when you're strong, there are certain there's there's a concept in Islamic political thought that will say, okay, we don't have to. Uh, we don't have to follow a jihad now because we're we have this ptol, this this hudna, and and this is what you see when you so-called moderate Islamists. They, you will always find them when uh, when they're in a position of weakness. Mm-hmm. Okay, and this is the argument between the northern and the southern branch inside Israel. Basically, the the, the question is: Are we weak or not? Can is this Practical for us to be uh, more, uh, you know, more activists uh, against the state. Or in this situation, we need to accept the fact that Israel exists, and we can have our mosques, we can have education, we can, can gather up assets and, and and get stronger as a movement. And then maybe next generation, this movement can become uh, militarized mm-hmm. because the situation would change. That's the kind of argument they have. And the same with uh, the PLO and Mansour Abbas. Uh, be, they're in a situation of weakness uh, 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 versus Israel, and therefore they, they choose to be pragmatic because they don't have any ch- other choice. Mm-hmm. Now, they're not that pragmatic as you think. There are several uh, terror attacks in the past years have been carried out by uh, PLO, Palestinian Authority policemen, people with official positions in the PA. It's not that people, you know, people think they're everything's okay with the PA. It's really not okay. Uh, some of the seventh of October attacks will be carried by Fatah activists, which is uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas's movement. Okay, but they, the the basic idea is that if we are strong enough to make jihad impossible, make jihad unrealistic, then they can become realistic. Mm-hmm. And then you have people say, okay, now it's time for a long-term hudna. So let's deal with other issues. 
and then we can have the situation of some kind of uh, of uh, you know uh, in in Hebrew we say dukium of uh, coexistence, co right? Yeah, so the coexistence with with uh, the Islamic way of thought can only work if you're strong enough for them to have uh, to have a to be patul from the mitzvah of jihad. Uh -huh, very interesting. Once they are patul, so they can be they, it, it can be amazing because right. then they can think about other things. Okay, uh -huh, but you have to be strong enough for for this patul uh, to be intact. Got it. So okay. let me ask you a question. So that, that's actually a great segue. Oh, see, just, just one more word about that. Just one more yeah. word about that. Hamas started out as a pragmatic organization in the 80s. They were dealing, PLO was the, was the extremist activist, the terrorist since the, the 60s. And then Hamas started out in Gaza Trip with uh, Ahmed Yassin. They were dealing with education, with social welfare, you know, with the food for the poor. They were wonderful. They're very pragmatic. And the IDF, uh, in Israel, they loved them because they were good. They're dealing with the stuff the people never dealt with. And then when the Intifada started in 1988, the Hamas switched from this uh, social, you know, um, social education or religious movement, they switched to a military movement. And almost like in a, in a, matter, of, in a matter of days. Mm -hmm. So this is the way it, it operates. Okay. Interesting. So, so then, uh, this is actually a great segue because um, you know you, you've done a very good job, I think, articulating uh, the major misconceptions and sort of the major problems that you know Israel um, was dealing with and currently is is dealing with. Um, oftentimes, when people think about um, solutions and moving forward, uh, you get the sense, at least in the English-speaking world that um, there isn't sort of like an intellectual impetus that's motivating sort of alternative visions of Israel um, beyond what you hear coming out of the left. Um, you know, growing up in the U.S. Um, and sort of even now living in Israel for many, many years, you know, the issue of like the two-state solution and, you know, the, the language of we're going to bring back, you know, the Palestinian Authority, you know, has been very much in the vocabulary of Westerners for a really long time. In fact, I have a student whose father was a very prominent uh, Mideast negotiator. I'm not going to mention his name, but I remember he had a great line to me, and he said, the best part about the two-state solution business is that you never lose your job, right? Because it's never going to happen, right? <laughs> so you're, you're always employed, right? His son said that, not him. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I'm curious. You're obviously, you know, in addition to being a commentator, you're also a scholar, and you're aware of sort of the scholarly research going on on the right about people who have more creative and more thoughtful uh, perspectives beyond, you know, the rhetoric of Basal Smotrich and, uh, and uh, Bengvir about what they would envision. I mean, assuming everybody accepts your critique, right? So what, what would your view be, right, for Israel moving forward in terms of conceptualizing Gaza? Like, what, what would your plan be, right? Because it seems like all the media and all the discussion going on is falling back to the exact same conceptions that you described of bringing back the PA and working with an illusion of pragmatism and hoping that if we have a state that, you know, that unites the West Bank and Gaza, everything will be okay. Saudi normalization and all these types of languages of very pragmatic sort of solutions. So what, what do you think would be the best strategy moving forward in terms of dealing with very problematic areas like Gaza? Right. So uh, the basic, um, I would say the, the basic uh, military philosophy of the right in Israel uh, was, uh, was established, uh, written down by Jabotinsky, and he called it Kir HaBarzel, the Iron Wall. Okay? And, uh, and he explained exactly what we're talking about. He said the only way we can have some kind of uh, coexistence in the Middle East is if we're so strong that every time they attack us, they... Uh, they, they uh, 
they get stuck by this iron wall. We're so strong, they cannot, they know they cannot win. And uh, if this is a situation, we can have all different kinds of models of cooperation with minorities inside Israel, um, with our neighbors, and, and um, you know, everything, everything could be, we could have a new Middle East if you're strong enough. So I think this lesson, and Jabotinsky wore this after, you know, the riots in the, the 30s or something like that, right? That was his lesson from the riots, also in the Russian Empire and also in uh, what was then called Palestine. You need to be strong enough that so that your enemy knows that uh, attacking you is not pragmatic. Then other things can happen. And I think this is the main goal that we need to... Israel needs to go come back, go back to these basic ideas. We need to be stronger. Uh, the military needs to be bigger. It needs to be more well-prepared. Uh, we didn't talk yet about all these military misconceptions, but the idea that we can... Israel has been downsizing its army for like 30 years already. And uh, thinking that we can subsidize um, boots on the ground and having a, a large you know, land uh, army, uh, we can, um, we can uh, substitute that with different technological stuff like cameras and airplanes and intelligence and the smart bombs and, and things like that. Uh, and our enemies see through this, and they found ways to, you know, to play around with. We thought they were deterred. They basically were messing around with our own conception of them, and they attacked. But we need to be, we need to be strong enough so they they don't think about attacking us. They understand they cannot attack. And then you can have a lot of things can happen. Uh, the the reason why people think the PA is a good model today as opposed to like 20 years ago when the second intifada was uh, was going around people think the pa is a good model today because we uh, we attacked the pa at uh, operation um, of what was it called the uh, defensive shield right and um, we dismantled their terrorist apparatus and we control the territory in, the, in different levels in different areas, but we basically Israel has a basic control of the territory. And th and and this in these conditions, the PA is a model is a possible model, but it's only possible, and then it's only that's the only reason why people think they're in some kind of alternative to anything is because uh, we're strong and we control the territory. So what I think should have happened in Gaza, and uh, it's not happening. Maybe we should have another conversation at some point why it's not happening. But uh, we have to get into a situation where uh, IDF can operate freely in the Gaza Strip. It will be very, very difficult to dismantle Hamas totally. But you have to operate there freely uh, over a long period of time. Uh, we have to control the, the Rafah crossing where they bring in all their ammunition and all the the material they need to produce arms and everything else they do. And, uh, and this is an ongoing war. There's not going to be, people think you do like a short, strong war, then you're done. You go out and somebody else will come in and like, finish the job or take control. Nobody else will take control. There'll probably be Hamas and Gaza for the near future, if not longer. That's, that's just the way these people behave and think. They support Hamas. They, they are Muslim Brotherhood. Hamas has been preaching their version of Islam in the Gaza Strip for like maybe 40 years already. There's, there are hardly any people there who are, are not a, uh, 
are not a construct of the Hamas teachings anymore. It's like it's all gone. So uh, they'll probably still be there. We have to fight them all the time, um, and 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 be strong enough. So when you fight them all the time, you don't have to actually be inside Gaza Strip all the time. But you have to have the, the option to re-enter uh, militarily as need. So in other words, okay. you, in other words, your idea would be to replicate what we did after Chomat Magain, right, in Yudav Shamron, in Aza, basically to be able to sort of go in militarily whenever we need. You mentioned before that right now you mentioned you mentioned before that you don't think they're doing that currently. Um, why not? Meaning you're saying just because they haven't taken over the Rafiah Philadelphia corridor, right? Just because they haven't done that yet, that implies that you know they're sort of allowing for the possibility that it won't be full military accessibility. Yeah, well, the whole the whole war, actually, military operation was kind of was. This is a longer discussion, but Israel, uh, the, the, there's a there's a big problem with the uh, connection between goals and means in this war. The goals were to bring back the hostages and to dismantle Hamas. These were the goals that we were told in the media and everywhere else. Uh, but the means that were taken were not were not appropriate because if you want to dismantle Hamas and maybe bring back your hostages, first of all, you have to shut down the Rafa crossing. Okay? Because that's where they get their uh, that, that's where they get they're getting their uh, equipment all, all the time and also continually during the war. It's not it's still operating. Even though Egypt is our uh, this peace with Egypt and, and etc. But they're, they're still being resupplied through Rafa. Uh, once we didn't do that uh, so you're the kind of fighting, you know, fighting the symptom, but not the problem. You can always go in and, you know, uh, bomb certain houses and explode some tunnels and you'll, you know, re recover some, uh, you know, military cages and all this equipment and anything. You know, we see all the time, this, they're catching all this stuff, but they're resupplying all the time. And we will not be able to hold on forever when we have our troops, you know, those six... Uh, six divisions, full divisions operating in Gaza at the height of this operation, right? And once and once uh, some of the troops pulled out, the Hamas operators came out again. They were still there in the territory. And we cannot hold this kind of, uh, of, of operation uh, on forever. So the thing to do would have been to take control of the Gaza, of, of the Rafa crossing and, and stop the resupplyment, first of all. And then you can have limited operations inside the Gaza Strip for different different goals, but then you know what whatever you took control of, wherever you seized, will not be resupplied. Okay. Well, let, me ask, let me ask you a question though about that. I mean, again, there's so much to talk about here. So obviously, you know, the government you currently have, right, is considered a government of the right. Um, obviously, it's somewhat of a complicated situation right now with a kind of a quasi-unity government, right? But, you know, right. one of the interesting things though, I mean, presumably what you're saying makes sense, and obviously there are some sensitivities with Egypt, right? But you know, for example, you know, if you think about like other governments or other political leaders who are associated with the right, whether it's Netanyahu or or Sharon. Right. So it, it sounds to me or, for example, even in this case, it sounds to me that a lot of these personalities who are ideologically associated with the right, when it comes to actual governance, they don't really govern uh, based on sort of right wing policy. And this may be a great example of that. In other words, you know, you have Yoav Gallant, who's a defense minister, right? He's somebody associated with the right. You have Bibi, the prime minister. So, you know, this is a good example. Like what you're what you're saying makes a lot of sense, right? So, presumably, like 
what's hold, what, what was holding back the army? Why didn't they want to actualize this vision, right, for the war? What, what was their resistance? Yeah, well, this is a bigger, bigger discussion. Well, what we're told when we talk to people, they say the Rafa issue is uh, it's a problem. It's a problem because of Egypt, and we have you know there are allies and, and and things like that. I I think these kinds of problems are solvable. Okay, there are allies. The Egyptians don't like Hamas. It's, it's solvable. We could have done that. Um, <clears throat> the thing that happens in Israel is that. Um, our American audience, they, they're used to some kind of system where the civic uh, control of the military is very strong. The Pentagon is a civic uh, establishment, basically. Uh, and the president controls the armed forces and he can uh, he appoints his people to top positions. And he's the, the president is, is the, is, he's the commander of the army. Okay. In Israel, the whole establishment works differently, and uh, the, the civic uh, operation or this political uh, establishment has very limited influence on the military establishment. It's run; it's some kind of a closed circle. It's like the people, um, the ex-generals, become ministers of defense, okay, and they promote the same kinds of typecasts inside the system. And uh, and the military, the IDF itself, he's he does the strategy, he has the intelligence, he does the national uh, uh, national assessment, which in America that's that's a uh, responsibility of the president, right? Uh, the military, the strategic assessment. In Israel, there's no other uh, uh, institution that does that besides the the army itself. And then in cases um, in cases of war. Usually, a lot of times, like, political leaders don't really have a lot of alternatives. Okay, the only planning institution in Israel is the IDF. The only intelligence institution is the IDF. The only place that has, uh, you know, serious strategic thinking is the IDF, and it's it's the same people that promote each other. Uh, the chief of staff in the IDF has a lot of authority and a lot of crucial issues dealing with. Um, in Hebrew, you say "binyan koach." It's like the way you um, you build your force, mm -hmm. which airplanes to buy, which tanks to buy. You want more infantry, less infantry. You want more uh, airplanes and cyber, and you want to shut down uh, tank battalions. The chief of staff of the IDF has this authority to make these decisions, and they get approved by the government. But the, the government has no way of the uh, of uh, criticizing or uh, opposing these kinds of ideas. And uh, this is a bigger problem. Mm -hmm. um, but then in, the, in, in times of war, uh, you, uh, the political leadership is basically stuck with whatever, with whatever the military establishment uh, gives them. Okay, so if they can, United States history, Lincoln, I think he fired maybe five or six generals before he landed on the... Uh, and USS Grant, right? Yeah. He, he fired every year. He fired the a the commander of the Army of the Potomac because they were losing battles, right? Uh, and then he got they got the military leader that could carry out his strategy and and, and win. 
So in the case of Israel, we will still have been stuck with, uh, I, was that the McLellan? Who was the first one? I forgot. The, I don't know. The, the one who lost like, the first, <laughs> yeah, the one who lost like, the first bull run battle, right? And like, the first battle of the war in Israel, we will still be stuck with him because we cannot, the, the, the BB could not have fired him. Okay. Right. And, and we continue on losing the war. There's nothing you can do about it. So. So in, in this case, you come to a war. Now, these guys had a, a terrible failure leading up to the 7th of October, right? And it's the chief of staff. It's the, it's the, the people, the, 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 the commander of the, the Southern Command and, and the other bunch of, the, of people in, in key positions. And they're still in these positions uh, now running this war, okay? So it's it's like uh, at least some of these people shouldn't have run this war. They should have been switched. Okay, mm -hmm. maybe not the chief of staff because maybe morally maybe it's a problem. But the the commander of South Command, obviously. Okay, the commander of the the Gaza division, obviously. The the top the chief the guy talking uh, the head of the intelligence of Amman, the intelligence division Aaron Khaleva, which uh, he's one of the fathers of this misconception. Obviously, should have been switched, but. The way the Israeli establishment works, it's it's almost impossible because the, the government is not the supreme commander of the army. Interesting. And I'm saying all this because that, then you ask, how come the right-wing leaders are kind of uh, implementing maybe other ideas of war during war? Because the truth is, there's, there's no other ideas of war. There's the, the military with what they what they bring up to the cabinet, and you either approve or disapprove. But that's basically what you got. So you're saying basically even internally, let's say from an intellectual perspective, you're saying even internally, the way the army is currently structured, um, effectively the totality, or at least the overwhelming majority of the army leadership is uh, basically sharui ba conceptia. In other words, they're very much invested in sort of a way of thinking that doesn't allow for some sort of alternative vision that you're describing, meaning it's less an issue of, let's say, political leadership. It's more an issue of sort of a uh, a, a failure of vision internally, right, within the military, right? Um, is that sort of a fair assessment, you would say? Yeah, definitely. And uh, I'll tell you, we talked about Khomat Magen, Defensive Shield. Uh, defensive Shield happened after Ariel Sharon, who himself was a... Uh, Aloof. I don't know how you, in English, what this... Uh, Colonel or general. Yeah, yeah, major. He was a high-ranking general, uh, decorated general. So he knew the army well. And Khomat Magen only happened after he um, he uh, he bypassed the, the the top echelon of the IDF command. Okay? Moshe Yalon was the... Uh, was uh, uh, was not it was the, the deputy chief of staff and the chief of staff uh, Shaul Mofaz and Benny Gantz by the way he was the the commander of the Judean Samaria division okay Ugdat Yudav Shomron Ariel Sharon bypassed these people and he talked to brigadier leaders and they said we can do this and the leadership of the IDF the chief of staff and other senior leaderships, they were against uh, the Hamas Magen operation. They were against re-entering the Palestinian cities. But Ariel Sharon had a, a strong enough military uh, authority that he could do this. He could bypass these people, talk, uh, uh, you know, talk, talk directly with uh, brigadier leaders, and then decide and and uh, push on the army to to make this this operation. 
Netanyahu is a, um, you know, like a platoon leader. Okay, so he, doesn't, he didn't have like a, a big military career. He doesn't have military authority. Maybe his understanding of the system is not uh, is not that uh, deep. The way the system operates as a system, mm-hmm. and and then he cannot do what Arik Sharon did. Okay, mm-hmm. he cannot like, knock on the table and say, "Okay, listen, guys, now we're doing something different." Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that is a uh, that is a big problem. Definitely interesting. Maybe we could just end, uh, I mean, there's so much to talk about. This was really an amazing and enlightening conversation. I could go on, obviously, for hours, but, uh, you know, we're not Joe Rogan podcast here. You know, we don't have, like, no, we don't have three hours in every podcast. <laughs> but uh, maybe we could just talk for a few minutes, because it relates very much to this issue of Shinui Concepcia. One of the things you talked about in one of your podcasts um, was this issue of um, the dependency of Israel on the U.S. and the question specifically about um, ammunition. Um, you hear a lot of times that Israel is dependent on the U.S. and primarily because if it weren't for the U.S. shipments of ammunition, so Israel would be in trouble. Uh, I'm curious if you think this is also just a problem of conception, a problem of misconception. And somehow, you know, in order for Israel to be strong moving forward militarily, in order for, you know, using your language for our enemies to feel like there's a Kir Habarzel, right? They have to feel like, you know, we have our own... Um, shipments of, uh, of of weapons coming in and we're not perpetually dependent on the on people from the outside um, i read an interesting thing recently where someone wrote that you know when you have a lot more weapons so you're able to sort of be more precise in terms of your attacks if you have less weapons it doesn't mean you won't be as effective it just means you won't be as precise so I'm, quite, I'm curious if you think also that part of the issue here is that, you know, our relationship to the U.S., which is a complicated topic, but particularly on the question of weapons, right, you know, people are sort of very much tied into an outdated conception. And do you think that that, you know, impacts the way we think about uh, military conflict? Yeah, well, definitely Israel has, Israel, Israel will always be and always was dependent on the foreign assistance in times of war. That, that We're a small market. We cannot... Uh, obviously, uh, you know, um, manufacture everything we need. That's that's a fact. But we could be more independent. And now what happened is that because this is also a long conversation, but the U.S. have uh, they have some kind of like reserve reserve deposits of ammunition in different countries where they have uh, allies, like Israel, South Korea, Germany, etc. And then we and we are allowed to use their deposit in case of emergency. And then uh, at some point in Israel, they said, okay, we can, we don't have to hang on to our own reserve deposits because it's very expensive uh, to have these, your own, it's, it's costs a lot of money because this ammunition, you have to store it. Uh, and it's uh, at some point it becomes outdated and you need, you need to, you know, you need to produce more or buy more. That's a lot of money. And then he said, okay, we can rely on the United States uh, deposits. Now, what happened is that the United States shipped most of its deposits away and to Ukraine like a year ago. That's what happened. Uh, because these deposits are here in case of the you know emergency where the United States would need it in, in the region and they needed it, so they took it. And therefore, and then we were kind of stuck. This war started and we were stuck with hardly any. We didn't have enough material to to, to run a war even for a month. This is one of the reasons why it took a few weeks for the military operations to start, because we had to like, resupply. So this is a big problem. Now, 
anytime you talk to people in the establishment about this, they say, well, it's impossible. We will never be totally independent uh, militarily. We will always need to import and we cannot manufacture all of it. That's true. But you can be maybe, you know, independent enough to, to run a military operation of a month and a half, let's say, or, uh, you know, two months maybe. You could be more independent than you are, okay? We could have some kind of uh, larger uh, reserve as far as military uh, material, right? Um, and the thing is that the, our military establishment, they prefer to sp uh, spend money on uh, technolo technology, airplanes, uh, cyber, all these kinds of stuff, and not on the classic, you know, um, uh, military equipment which is also ammunition. It's also the basic equipment of the, of the soldiers. The, the soldiers that were drafted um, uh, in, in reserve in the beginning of this war, they found it's very similar to the Second Lebanon War and, and also maybe the Yom Kippur War. They came to their uh, deposits and the equipment was no good. Some of it, like 50%, not, no good. They could not... If we were attacked in a in a foreign way that you had to fight on day one, Israel was not prepared. This is a fact. Not prepared. Not enough ammunition. The equipment was no good. That everybody living here, and I'm sure our audience also saw all these campaigns of uh, people collecting money to buy right. like military equipment, clothing, uh, backpacks, um, vests. You know, all this. It's it's basic stuff. You know. It's not like extra. And, and then in the first like, two or three weeks, everybody, every unit, they were doing this head start to collect money and calling all the people who have you know, relatives in America and stuff like that to, to, to raise funds to buy the basic equipment that did not exist. So uh, this is a major problem. And, and this, is, this, is, this is a result of uh, chief of staff of the IDF throughout years um, deciding to de-invest in this and the basic uh, war equipment of the of, of your soldiers the infantry and the and the, and the tank tank brigades and uh, and invest more in the and all the sophisticated stuff the computers the cybers uh, you know aircrafts uh, the the unarmed aircrafts, all of this fancy stuff. This defense we built in the Gaza Strip was very expensive, billions of dollars, and it was supposed to solve the problem. Uh, and then once once this doesn't work, you, you and you need your uh, you need your army. Your army is not prepared. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say what we need to do is we have to have an army that's uh, in high preparedness to to. Um, uh, to take out, you know, military action, and 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 then you have to have the the material, you have to have the bombs, you have to have the ammunition, you have to have the clothing and the vests and the helmets, all the stuff that people were buying on, on Amazon, which is crazy. Right, right. <laughs> and and you have to be prepared for this because the cyber and the technology, all the stuff, will get you so far. And also, when talking about the technology and all this, this this it's very also that that's. The missiles, the technological missiles, a high-tech army that we, we built, uh, they, let's say the Kipat Barzel, that, um, you know, that uh, it takes down the, the Iron the Dome, rockets. right. Iron Dome, yeah. Iron Dome, right, right. Uh, it's very expensive. 
Right. They say like a hundred thousand dollars for a rocket. So the Hamas, they fire you some. They use something that costs maybe I don't know, like like two hundred dollars to produce, and and we uh, and we intercept it with something that costs a hundred thousand dollars. You cannot hang on forever <laughs> with this ration, uh, uh, right? And the smart bombs that dropped by airplanes that we can, you know, they can. They can put a bomb inside in, in somebody's window, you know, and kill them while he's eating lunch, and his wife will be unharmed, you know, stuff like that. And it's very expensive, right? And and you cannot run a, a, a actual war with this kind of equipment. And this was this is what happened. We had an actual war, and then you need you need you need stupid bombs, and you need artillery shells, and you need uh, you need tank shells, and all stuff. You don't have enough, mm-hmm. and and uh, and that's a that's a serious problem. Mm-hmm. So looking forward, we need to we need to uh, address that. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, that's what I would say. Okay, this has been an amazing conversation. I really appreciate you uh, you taking the time. Hopefully, you'll be able. To, there's so much to talk about here. Hopefully, you'll agree to come back on another time to talk about them. Sure. Just out of curiosity, um, if people want to follow you, I know you're available on Facebook. I know they could check out Mida. Does Mida have any English articles, or everything's in Hebrew? Yeah, so there's a Mida in English. Okay, uh, I can send you a link. Or it's, it's a, it's a Mida.org.il. Yeah, but there's a, I think there's a different domain for English. But if you go on Midargayel, you can see a tab saying English on it. Okay. Uh, and I would just say it's uh, because of the war. We're, we were reestablishing Midar in English. And because of the war, our English guy was drafted to, uh, uh, to, to do reserve duty. So it's, it's, it's going to, we're doing a comeback for English now. It's, it's going to come back in the next few days. Amazing. Well, but I think you're uh, obviously a really important yeah. voice and uh, a unique voice. So we really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of Tzarech Iyun, please share it with others. Also, might appreciate being part of this conversation. If you haven't yet, please rate, review. And of course, don't hesitate to be in touch with any questions, comments, and topic suggestions at oraitapodcast at gmail.com. This is Tzarech Iyun, a podcast of Yeshivat Oraita. <laughs>